Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Happy Friday, Food Junkies listeners. In this episode, Clarissa and I had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Nassim Tabri, PhD. Dr. Tabri is the Director of the Mental Health and Addictions Laboratory and an Assistant Professor in the Department of Psychology at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. Dr. Tabri's research explores how different transdiagnostic factors like overvalued ideation, perfectionism, and impulsivity may function together to proliferate or make worse and maintain engagement in various health-compromising behaviors like disordered eating and gambling. The ultimate aim of his research is to enhance the prevention, assessment, and treatment protocols of various mental health disorders. Dr. Tabri also researches the mental health and well-being implications of group membership. This research integrates social identity theory with theories from clinical and health psychology to understand how group-related factors like perceived intergroup threat, group-based emotions, and social identification affect the mental health and well-being of group members. The goal is to develop an integrative framework of how group membership may affect our mental health and well-being. So as you can imagine, Clarissa and I were super excited to sit down with Dr. Tabri. Welcome. Thank you so much, Nassim, for being with us today. And we're going to just jump right in. Can you tell us a bit about your personal and professional journey, how you got to this place? Why are you doing this research? Yes, good question. I have a bit of a mixed journey. So I'm originally from the Middle East in Lebanon. I was born there. I grew up in the Middle East as well. And uh, part of growing up in the Middle East is like there's this experience of political instability. There is war around us. It's not as relatively safe as North America, so to say. But, you know, thankfully, I was able to leave there in Canada, you know, and where I landed in Montreal. I was a, I did my BA, MA and PhD at Concordia University. My research interests over there you know, stemmed from my some of my early life experience, you know, growing up in Lebanon, where there's this political instability, there, you know, there's collective action, there's war and so forth. I was really interested in prejudice, you know, intergroup prejudice. I was interested in why people hate each other, why people want to kill each other, you know, and just forms of extreme behavior, so to say. And so that's what I studied largely, you know, for my MA and parts of my PhD. My MA was about, you know, I went back to Lebanon for my MA. I collected data there on why people, you know, why, let's say, Christians don't like Muslims and why Muslims don't like Christians and, and so forth. And what are some of the, the factors that, you know, increase or decrease these prejudice? What motivates people to get involved in the actions to support their group? PhD was more you know, also intergroup relations, more about why people from a, you know, a lower SCS background are able to move up the social ladder via university. And what's that like for them? But at the same time, in parallel, I was doing a lot of research on health, you know, depression. So I was involved in research during my master's on the Montreal Cognitive Assessment Forum, which is about, you know, measure of cognitive functioning. We looked at the role of depression in the geriatric population, people who are aging and retiring, and what is, how does depression influence cognitive functioning, as an example. There are other things I was involved in. And so, you know, I, I met my better half in Montreal as well through in grad school. And so she ended up going to Boston to complete, you know, her training, pre-doc and post-doc training at Harvard Medical School. And so I was given this really wonderful opportunity to work with the Jennifer Thomas and Cameron Eddy at the Eating Disorders Research and Clinical Training Program at Harvard Medical School, Mass General Hospital. That's where I, I really got into eating disorders. So I managed to have like a good part of a year being there, working with them. That's where I, you know, I got really into the idea of, you know, the self-concept and its role in eating disorders and how this may also be related to other forms of extreme behavior, so to say, and why. So just giving you a bigger, broader lens here. And I still continue working with Jenny and Cameron and other colleagues, Kendra Becker and others at the EDCRP. You know, we still do a lot, collaborate on a lot of work. 
till this very day. This was about 10 years ago now. <laughs> so, and then I ended up going to a second postdoc at Carleton University, which is where I landed this job. You know, I ended up working with Michael Wall, who's interested in addiction and intergroup prejudice as well. So I joined him initially as to, hey, I'm really interested in understanding why people get our prejudice towards other or why people will take action against other. And that developed this idea of, you know, looking at it from the perspective of anxiety. So when people get anxious and scared and threatened, they will behave in ways that will want to protect their group, right? You, know, you could see a lot of this in the United States, for example, with immigration, especially immigration from South America, where the, the borders and so forth. You know, people, whether this is an objectively real threat or not, is not the question. It's about what people think, right? And so just to add one more piece to this. So like, you know, I took an idea from theories of anxiety disorders in clinical psychology, like Beck's cognitive model. And said, so, well, what Beck says that, you know, a threat, we could perceive threat in at least three different ways that combine to create a lot of anxiety, like, you know, the probability of something happening that's bad, that you don't want it to happen, that it will be harmful, potentially hurt you or kill you, and that there's little you could do about it. And so we took these ideas of how people get, you know, develop phobias from spiders, let's say, or snakes, you know, you could say, oh, like, oh, I see the spider in this cage it's going to hurt me and it's going to kill me and I can't stop it, you know? And so people have these ideas of phobias, but we took these ideas of these appraisals of a threat and used them to understand group phenomena. So this is like one idea where I, I love taking ideas from one area of research and implanting them to understand phenomena in another area of research where these two research areas don't typically talk to each other. And I've been doing the same thing with addiction and eating disorders, so to say, you know? So I could tell you a bit more about that, which I'm sure you're going to have more questions about. But so my research journey then, you know, I postdoc with Michael for a few years and there was this job opportunity that came up at Carleton University and I was very fortunate to be awarded the position. So I've been here now at Carleton as a faculty since 28, faculty member since 2018. And I was recently tenured last year. So I'm here to stay, which is great. <laughs> Awesome, Nusima. I love that. And I think what you're talking about today was making me think so much of like how we have this dogma, even in the nutrition world of like the carnivores against the vegans or the mm. vegetarians and how that speaks to it in such of this anxiety and like fear. And so them lashing out when really everyone has the same message of just eat real food and not necessarily those processed foods. So could you speak to us a little bit more about the specific research you're doing right now with addictions and eating disorders like out of Carleton University? For sure. I have many lines of research, so maybe I could speak a little bit about each one of those. So Please do. Okay, perfect. So like, maybe we'll start from where it all began. So when I was working with Jennifer Thomas and Cameron Eddy and Debbie Franco at the, the EDCRP in Boston, you know, I was really interested in this idea of this over-evaluation of body shape and weight or appearance that this seems to be like a, has been argued by Fairburn and others in their transdiagnostic CBT model that it is the core pathology underlying anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa. And it's a maintaining factor of behaviors such as binge eating and dietary restraint and so forth. I was really interested in that. We published a paper together back in 2015 about how uh, weekly changes, you know, and over-evaluation is associated with non-compensatory weight control activities, right? You know, that with that being, you know, like not eating, for example, you know, severe dietary restraint or fasting. And so Building on that idea, when I went to work with Michael, I initially, as I was saying, Michael Wall at Carleton University, I was initially joining there to do a postdoc on intergroup relations and anxiety and why people want to kill each other. But then he's like, oh, Nassim, I do this work on gambling. And I'm like, oh, how interesting, you know? And so one thought I had was like, well, what about if people, some, maybe some people who develop gambling problems, one risk factor or maintaining factor is that they really care about how much money they have. They overvalue the importance of financial success. And so that was like the very first bridge between these two areas, you know, where we're like, hey, at least in my world, you know, my research world, you know, where we're taking ideas from eating disorders to understand another behavior that doesn't typically co-occur, like eating disorders and gambling. There's a very low co-occurrence rate over there. And so, but the idea being that there could be factors that are transdiagnostic, that transdiagnostic being that you see them across a range of behaviors or mental health problems. But, you know, they don't necessarily co-occur at the same time. So the idea being like, this is, what is core to both is that there's this focus on this one area of life that's really important to you. And so 
the eating disorders, arguably, at least for some people with eating disorders, it's appearance. And with gambling, I'm arguing and I'm trying to make the case here in my research, you know, is that it's financial success. And so we developed this tool and we've been, you know, doing research on its psychometric properties and showing that we have a paper now that's under review, hopefully it'll be published soon. We're showing some initial evidence, longitudinal evidence that individuals who gamble and who have more of a financially focused self-concept, they care a lot about how much money they have as being tied to their self-worth and their sense of who they are, their identity and self-concept. They tend to develop more gambling problems over time, over six, you know, we've, the timeline over here was about seven months, six to seven months. And we're showing also that those people who have gambling problems, they're more likely to develop a financially focused self-concept too over the six to seven months period. So there's this bi-directional association going on, which we pretty much also kind of see in eating disorders too, at least in bulimia nervosa and anorexia nervosa, where an overvaluation of appearance is kind of the centerpiece or in these three, according to the CBT model, Herbert CBT model. So that would be one line of research where we're looking at this nexus over here. Related to that is I'm now also looking at orthorexia nervosa. So this orthorexia nervosa, just very briefly, is this putative, I say putative eating disorder because it's not really a diagnosable condition yet, officially at least. And there's this really big disagreement in the literature between clinicians and researchers about whether it's really a, a standalone entity that's separate from anorexia nervosa. So briefly, like orthorexia nervosa, just for your listeners, it's that there is a focus on eating healthy. Even though people with ortho, supposedly who have orthorexia nervosa, they might, you know, physically look like individuals who have anorexia nervosa, like they're of the restricting type, right? They, they lose a lot of weight, but they do so for different reasons. It's the theory, the idea behind it. So with anorexia nervosa, there's this dietary restraint or not eating because it's rooted in body image concerns. Whereas with orthorexia nervosa, there is no body image concerns. And there are some, you know, I guess, um, some case studies that have shown this, but in the research literature, there's evidence that, you know, or symptoms of orthorexia nervosa kind of correlate with symptoms like the, with body image concerns, but not necessarily as highly, but, you know, again, it's a mixed literature. It's an evolving space. So what did I do over there? Like, well, maybe there's a health focused self-concept. <laughs> so we've developed a tool to look at this. And so we're now, we have published a couple of studies on that, where we've shown that there is evidence for the idea of people having a lot of, placing a lot of importance on eating healthy and being healthy as part of their self-worth. This correlates moderately with body image concerns, and it is pretty much linked to disordered eating as seen in anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa, and also in what we are calling today orthorexia nervosa. So there is this weird, not weird, but it's this more connectivity between these conditions, you know, and so that's another area that I'm interested in. Is there really orthorexia without body image concerns? Is it really a health concerns? Again, it's an evolving area, so we're still doing work on this. We're also trying to think of what could be other transdiagnostic mechanisms involved there. Uh, one of which is disgust is what we're looking at, the role of disgust in. So we know in eating disorders, in particular anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa, there's been a lot of focus on self-disgust, but not a lot related to disgust towards food. And so what we've been looking at with our studies in orthorexia nervosa, and this is not published yet, we're still doing a replication study now, is that we're finding that people can feel disgusted towards food that is perceived to be unhealthy. So we're not saying that there are healthy foods and unhealthy foods, but how people perceive them, right? And so this, this disgust, I mean, we call it like, you know, physical disgust. We're like, oh, it's like the taste, the touch, the five senses, how it looks, they don't like it, you know? And then that is linked to orthorexia nervosa symptoms. We also are looking at the role of moral disgust, which might be something that has to do, that could play a role in anorexia or bulimia nervosa and or orthorexia nervosa too, where the idea being like, oh, meat is murder, you know? So I'm disgusted by eating meat or, you know, fast food, let's say, because the leftovers are used to pollute the environment, for example, you know, like, so it's about moral transgressions related to unhealthy food and looking at how this relates to orthorexia nervosa and other symptoms of eating disorders. So this is also another space. So it's not only the health focus of concept, but looking at other factors like emotions, like disgust as another role, role in as a transdiagnostic factor. A third line of research, and I'm taking ideas from gambling to understand eating disorders. And this is kind of tying into, I don't want to call it my theory, but you know, I'm, I don't think theories belong to people. We're trying to understand phenomenon 
out there and the service of helping people ultimately, you know? So in, in gambling disorder, one of the key maintaining factors over there is erroneous beliefs about the ability to win at games of chance. So like, oh, I could go in there, I could find a slot machine that is hot and I know when it's hot, I know when it's gonna pay out. You know, this is all random, right? So we have people have these false beliefs or false understandings about being able to win, or they have like a strategy, let's say to win at blackjack. But we know even in gambling games that have some element of skill, the odds are never in the gambler's favor. And so one thing that helps connect people or to maintain their gambling in the face of mounting financial losses and other related consequences is the idea that they could beat the house in some way. They have this innate ability to do so. And so that's what maintains their engagement in gambling. And so the treatment is, oh, well, let's partly address the erroneous beliefs that they have about being able to win or even in prevention, telling people, well, you know, you can't really beat the house. You know, it's just, this is about entertainment really. And if it becomes more than entertainment, then it's a sign of potential problem. So we took this idea of erroneous beliefs and to understand disordered eating. So in one paper we recently published, where we're looking at it in gambling and disordered eating, we were saying, well, maybe a focused self-concept, whether it be financial success in gambling or appearance in anorexia and bulimia, that link to disordered eating or disordered gambling may be amplified when people have erroneous beliefs about what these behaviors serve. You know, so in gambling, it's like, oh, I really care a lot about how much money I have. If I don't have a lot of money, I am a terrible person. I'm not worth it. I have these beliefs that I could make money through gambling, then that will amplify this association, you know, between or link. So it amplifies the risk. And we showed an analogous finding with disordered eating. And so what we found is that having an appearance-focused self-concept is linked to disordered eating behaviors. But when people have erroneous beliefs about the safety and the efficacy of these disordered eating behaviors for weight control, so like not eating all day. Oh yeah, it's safe not to eat all day. And it's also very efficacious to lose weight. So the more people have these beliefs and have an appearance-focused self-concept, there is like this multiplicative effect on engagement in the behavior. And we've showed something similar with orthorexia nervosa as well, well, putative eating disorder. Again, you know, where we published a separate paper showing that, yeah, that the idea of having a health-focused self-concept linked to having orthorexia nervosa symptoms, that is amplified when people believe that you know, eating healthy foods only is really this key to maintaining their health on the long term. So they're, they're basically cutting out a lot of important foods because they have an erroneous belief that only eating broccoli, for example, is the way to go to be healthy, as opposed to having a more varied and balanced diet. So I guess but maybe another transdiagnostic factor just to weave that in across these other areas of research is perfectionism. So we also study perfectionism in my lab and how it intersects with the focused self-concept and erroneous beliefs. So there are a couple of papers that we published showing that suggesting that perfectionism may manifest in gambling problems or eating problems via a different focused self-concept, you know, depending on what you're exposed to in life, let's say, for example, in your environment. Again, gambling and eating disorders don't co-occur, but they can have similar risk factors is what my contribution is in this area, at least. So, And so we're looking at this cross-sectioning now. We're trying to look, look at this more longitudinally to get a better handle on the, the direction of associations and so forth. One more thing as well. So this is now linking it up to anxiety, because I know there was a question about anxiety as well in there. So I guess so we're really interested in transdiagnostic factors. I'm really interested in understanding a focused self-concept, be it health, appearance or financial or any other domain, so to say. I think the issue here is that if you're focused on one area of life as being super meaningful to who you are as a person and your performance in that area is what really defines your self-worth, then you're in trouble, you know, for a host of things, you know, and the domain that it's linked to specifically could determine in part the kind of problems you may have. Like, so again, financial gambling, appearance or body image with disordered eating, but now coming to anxiety. So we're like, well, maybe there's something transdiagnostic going on with how this factor of focus of concept may bias attention. We know that selective attention and bias attention exists in eating disorders. Published a couple of papers on the emotional stroop task. We're doing some research as well using the emotional stroop task and the dot probe task to better understand the link between having an appearance-focused self-concept and how this may bias attention. The research base is pretty thin when it comes to understanding the role of appearance-focused self-concept specifically, but there's a lot of work on body dissatisfaction 
And so we decided to run a study looking at appearance-focused self-concept specifically. So we hypothesized uh, a priori, and we pre-registered all of this. You know, it's that individuals who have a more of an appearance-focused self-concept, those individuals will have a biased attention, but to uh, stimuli that represent or describe uh, attractiveness words. Not necessarily the stigmatized appearance words, which is more what you'd see in body dissatisfaction. And we showed this with the Stroop task, you know, across two studies. And now we also have some unpublished data that we're trying to replicate. So again, preliminary findings, we should see the same thing with those who have a financially focused self-concept. They are slower to name or identify the color of words that describe financial success relative to neutral words that describe financial neutral words and to words that describe financial hardship. So it's something very, very specific to financial success words or in the context of financially focused self-concept and appearance focused self-concept is something specific to attractiveness words. And this is partly what, I guess it's not necessarily anxiety, so to say, but you know, the idea being you have a biased attention. So the idea where we got from the anxiety literature, you know, threat biases attention while we're saying, well, maybe a focused self-concept biases attention. And this maybe help explain why people will have a focused self-concept in a given domain, you know, maintain their engagement in the problematic behaviors or health compromising behaviors related to that domain. Yeah. yeah. As you're sharing all of that, like my brain is just like lighting up, lighting up, lighting up. Clarissa and I work at the intersection of disordered eating and addiction, you know, and we are working under the term of ultra processed food addiction or food, right? And much the same as orthorexia nervosa. It's not a diagnosable term yet, but that we're working with, you know, a group of people to apply to the World Health Organization and plead our case. And a lot of what you're saying is so true. And what we're experiencing as far as like, we're seeing, we're having to also draw those parallels of like, we see it over here with this and we see it over there with that. And that we can't, there's not necessarily research, but it sounds like you're doing the research that would help us kind of tie it together. And so I guess I was wondering like, if so you're using this tool or these different tools in these different lines of research. So like you're saying anxiety is common between gambling and eating disorder or disordered eating that maybe there's perfectionism that's potentially Are there others like just come to mind as far as like these factors that really seem to show up in both gambling and disordered eating? Oh, yeah. Mood problems is another one. Impulsivity is is another one too. Like we know mood problems in gambling is like, it's an etiological factor in the sense that people turn to gambling to escape and forget their worries or to change their mood. We see it also in eating disorders. It's there's a high comorbidity rate with anxiety and depression in people with eating disorders. This may partly be explained, I think, by a focused self-concept, I think. Not entirely, but part of why may, there might be a co-occurrence of mood problems and eating disorders or gambling problems is that when you're focused in one area of life, you're really putting all your eggs in one basket. And so if you're not doing well in that area of life, that's going to affect your mood. It's going to make you anxious. It's going to create these symptoms in you because, you know, it's hard to be the best at something all the time, especially now if you layer in perfectionism in that too, you're in for a lot of trouble. There's a lot of risk that gets, you know, additive risk over there, right? So that's the space I'm kind of working in, trying to understand these associations and these links and why, you know, we have these these problems that persist for very long periods of time or that we bounce out and bounce into, you know, so... So when you're talking about, you know, obviously these ideas of a focused self-concept, if I'm somebody who has struggled with binge eating disorder, bulimia, anorexia, or for us, it's food addiction, is your research being used to apply to how we can change that self-concept? Or do you have any thoughts about some treatment modalities that would help someone just starting on this journey to address that self-concept piece? Oh, great question. So I haven't done work on the recovery or treatment side of this yet, but I do have some ideas. So we know when people have a focus self-concept, their world shrinks, right? Their world becomes all about doing that one thing. We see this in eating disorders and those who gamble have a financially focused self-concept as well. Part of the definition of addiction is where you're spending a lot of time doing one thing. And at the expense of you know, success or spending time growing meaningful, doing well in other meaningful domains like interpersonal relationships. That's just 
another word for friendships, taking care of your family, your health, doing all these other things that are good for you, that are good for your survival, right? And so with the focus self-concept helps us understand that piece of addiction, at least, you know, part, you know, where you're not interested in doing anything else. Part of the definition of addiction is that you're not doing anything else too. And what, how this may be explained is again, a focus self-concept. So part of the kind of the treatment side or recovery side of this is that yeah, having people engage in other areas of life, grow meaningful relationships with friends again, or build new friendships, develop efficacy with new hobbies or skills or, you know, and so forth. This is not easy. It sounds really easy to say all this, but it's not, you know, like, like just look at addiction alone. Like people who have been struggling with, let's say, alcoholism or gambling for many years, like, you know, they have to change their friends now, the people they hang out with. That's not easy having a new friend, especially when you're not in your 20s anymore, right? So, or finding a new career, perhaps, or moving, you know? And so building efficacy to support these individuals and helping them develop a sense of efficacy part of me in those areas is key. I know from the addiction literature, one thing that's been shown to be very helpful for individuals who've struggled with substance use, for example, is building communities of recovery. So this now ties into like intergroup relations as well. You know, like it's about social identity here saying, okay, you and me in this addiction community are the same. We could learn from each other. We can support each other. It's a sense of community. And we know that when people buy into this, like they're committed and they will engage in behaviors to support their recovery and to prolong their recovery as much as possible. And there is some research who's been doing this. John Kelly. I mean, he's at Harvard Medical School as well. John Kelly at Harvard Medical School has a couple of papers talking about the role of social identity and recovery. But I mean, look at the AA model, for example, Alcoholics Anonymous, like, you know, you look at the 12 steps, it has like, you know, we are this, we are that, you know, we have to work together. So there's this we-ness or groupness to it. And like someone who's been, you know, struggling with alcohol, you know, they have to change their friends or they're going to be welcomed into a new community. And to the extent that they buy into that and they, you know, are committed to it and see that community as part of who they are and they have a sense of belongingness, it could go a long way potentially. So at least from the side of addiction, you know, when it comes to eating disorders, I mean, I don't know, there are recovery communities out there, but I mean, my knowledge based with eating disorders and recovery, I mean, it's like, I know individuals with eating disorders, like with addiction, they bounce in and out of recovery a lot, you know, for many people with these conditions, it's a life journey, lifelong journey for many individuals, you know, to try and cope and stay on their recovery path. And so like, again, the sense of community being part of something that is good for you and having support is key. Yeah. It makes me think about, so like we, obviously you have a better understanding of what these factors are that, you know, co-occur across whatever it might be, like you said, trans diagnostic factors, but you know, we also know that there are these like risk factors that go into like even setting somebody up to be vulnerable to Uh these different diagnoses, if we will, or situations that they find themselves in. And I imagine, you know, it does come down to my belief is that it all comes back to safety, right? That there is this overwhelming sense of fear in some way, shape or form that, right, drives them to these coping mechanisms, no matter how maladaptive they may end up being, right? And I think a lot of people come to them, even with addiction, especially when we think about food addiction, we have a lot of clients who say, you know, from day one, I was addicted or from a very young age, I knew I could go to grandma's cookie jar or climb up on the refrigerator and get the whatever because things were chaotic in the house. And yeah, so I just really think about that as you were saying, you know, like some of these like treatment or recovery factors come back to this group of like not being so isolated. I'm not so alone that other people have done this and other people have gone before me. What have they done that worked for them? Can I apply it to myself? So in that, when you think about those things, have you, in these tools that you've created and you're, you know, researching, do any of these tools help us to better assess somebody's, I guess, trajectory or, you know, like, do you know who is more likely to do well in treatment or anything along those lines, whether it be with the addiction side of things or the disordered eating? That's a really good question, Molly. So let me just say something about the treatment literature first. (laughs) The treatment literature in many respects is biased. First of all, not to say that to discount the contributions from that literature, first and foremost, I think there's a lot of good work out there and we need to know about treatments that work that do not work, but how we select participants for treatment 
Like, you know, for example, we want individuals who have, let's say, depression, but they can't have addiction as a comorbid condition, or they can't have an eating disorder as a comorbid condition. So like, you know, it's kind of, I think this work is interesting and important in a preliminary sense. So we do need work that is treatment that targets multiple conditions because there's a high co-occurrence, right, of, you know, let's say eating disorders with mood disorders or with addiction as well, not necessarily gambling, but let's say with alcohol use, for example. And so it's kind of, you know, the treatment, if it's shown to work for people who just have an eating disorder, my sense is that it's more the norm that there are people who have an eating disorder, for example, or food addiction. They tend to have other problems too. This is more the norm than the exception. And so we need to have treatments that can address more than one issue because these are all interrelated in some way or form. So that's just my, my I'll get off my soapbox now and <laughs> come back to your question. So I think there's a lot to be done in this area. You know, I mean, I'm not in that space, the treatment space, but I do read this literature and that's just my impression of it. So again, there's a lot that needs to be done over there. I mean, we are far from developing very efficacious treatments for eating disorders in general. You know, like if you look at the CBT, which is supposedly the gold standard, uh, it's a flip of a coin. What will happen after you finish treatment? If you, whether you will relapse or not, really, it's a 50, 50 close to a 50, 50 chance. And so this tells us that is needed than just the 12 weeks of, of CBT, for example. You know, we need to connect people with communities. We need to re-engage them in their lives. We need to help them make these changes in their lives and, and to support them. They might also have other co-occurring problems that need to be addressed. Like, you know, if you address the appearance over evaluation, let's say in eating disorders, they might still have mood problems. They might have perfectionism. They might have impulsivity that may, you know, lead them to relapse. Perhaps. And so addressing, I guess, is holistic the right word? Yeah. And treatment might be the ideal way to go. But, you know, this is, and research is not easy. Research is slow. So, and it takes time. And we need to, you know, do good research, which involves, you know, building on prior research and knowing what works and doesn't work and extending it. So it's, it's a slow process. But, you know, the work that's out there, I mean, it's good, but we need more. We need more. Hey, food junkies listeners. We're just gonna take a quick break here to share with you something our team thinks could help benefit your recovery with food, body, or self. Thank you again for listening. Hey, Food Junkie listeners. Have you read the book, Food Junkies Recovery from Food Addiction yet? It all starts there. This is the book with the basic theory and clinical knowledge of food addiction. Read this book first to get the basics. Our Food Junkies podcast jumps off from the book and is the ongoing breathing version, ever growing and ever expanding. Our podcast introduces you to all the issues of food addiction and the who's who of food addiction today. And if we at the Food Junkies podcast have inspired you to action, either to quit sugar or some other triggering foods or behavior, and you need some extra support, then please join the free Facebook group, I'm Sweet Enough Sugar Free for Life. There you will find a community of people who come from all parts of the spectrum, from the new and just starting out, to the long timers who call themselves food addicts in recovery, to counselors ready to give back and help you. The Facebook group even offers free support Zoom groups. Basically, it's a great online living resource of food addiction to help you stay sugar-free for life. So please join us. Now back to the show. If you have enjoyed this episode, please let us know. We love to hear from you. Kindly leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to our podcast on. We love getting feedback from our listeners. So can you talk a little bit about your group research in terms of like, how do I find my group? Uh, how do, do people pick their groups or does it come from their background or where they feel safe or what they're drawn from family of origin? Have you found anything in your research that determines like, even when you were talking about people who decided to be, you know, engage in one group in the war or whatever, did childhood factors play a role in that or, and then choosing like, you know, when we think of an 
eating disorder or food addiction community, will we be biased to pick one group or another? And you may not be able to answer, but I wonder if you have thoughts about it. So your question about how do people pick a group? Yes. So let's talk about that first. So it's, I think from the social psychology side of things, you know, social identity theory, self-categorization theory, you know, many of the groups we belong to, like some of us are really born into these groups, right? Like, you know, I think of ethnicity or race or groups defined by language or national identity, or they could be even, uh, so that would be like broad groups. You can also have other groups that you could join too. Like, for example, you've joined the Undergraduate Society for Psychology at Concordia University, for example, because you're at that university. So like so some groups you're born into, some groups are preferences and choices based on your interests. You know, so I'm simplifying it a lot. When we take these ideas and we apply them to understand recovery, like, you know, having people to select, have them make that choice, like, okay, you know, first of all, you have to have them buy into treatment, right? And we know, like, for example, that many people with eating disorders don't voluntarily go to treatment. Many people with addiction don't voluntarily go to treatment, and so that I could see as being a roadblock or something that could interfere with long-term recovery, potentially, especially as when, you know, you complete treatment, but then there's following treatment, what happens to life afterwards. It's like finding a community that's that you could fit into that would be supportive of your recovery. Again, like it comes back to changing your friends or joining, let's say, with a substance use disorder with alcohol, joining something like AA or other recovery communities, right? And so I'm buying into that and joining it. So yeah, I don't have a good answer for that, but I think I could see one thing, one factor that could interfere with that process is not voluntarily choosing to go to treatment, right? Seeing that you don't have a problem. Because all your friends are doing the same thing. Correct. And then my, just a follow-up quick would be, can being a part of a group like that change your self-concept? Being a group like in recovery, like in recovery. So say I I was part of a, my self-concept was totally overvaluing on appearance or perfectionism or those types of things. Then I join a new group. Is that a great way to change that self-concept? Absolutely. Like I think, think of it like as a pie chart. If we have someone who has, let's say an overvaluation of appearance, 80% of their pie chart is appearance. That's a domain of life where they have a lot of, they place a lot of importance for self-definition and self-worth. And then the other remaining slices are, let's say, work, hobbies, friends, you know? And so the idea is like shrinking that pie, piece of the pie that's appearance and increasing or adding more slices to the pie, so to say, of other areas that are healthy and important, you know, for the individual as well, like, you know, changing your friends, for example, developing a new hobby or developing new interests that are healthy and that could help, you know, support recovery in that context, you know? So it's not easy to do. They say it takes a village, probably more than a village, you know? So like, you know, there's a buy-in from family to support recovery, for example. Like you imagine people struggling with addiction, addiction tends to run in families eating disorders too. And sometimes if, you know, significant others, family members are not on board, it could be another factor that can interfere with long-term recovery and joining such communities of recovery or building new efficacy in new areas that are healthy for oneself in their life. So would it be safe to say that joining one of these groups is potentially like a predictor of like long-term recovery, whether it be disordered eating, addiction, mental health, that's is that a leap qu- or is it? <laughs> it's a great question. I think it's a good hypothesis that it needs to be tested. So I think the research base, again, I mean, I think more research is needed. I mean, you could see like indirect research, like on AA, for example, or, or Gamblers Anonymous, where people who tend to commit and buy in, they tend to stay stick with it for a, a long period of time. Or you could look at factors that predict whether people will join and leave or join and stay, right? So we need more research of that nature to understand what are some of these factors. These these could be psychological factors, like, you know, let's say mood problems that were not addressed in the context of treating, let's say, uh, a gambling problem or, you know, or maybe it could be environmental factors such as you did not change your friends or both or some multiplicative effect that's more complex, right? So I also worry about like the quality of the group. So even though it's a recovery group. And as a clinician in the field for 18 years, I've heard really amazing stories 
from 12-step rooms, you know, experiences in 12-step rooms or other recovery groups. And I've heard horror stories. And I'm just wondering, you know, in your research, have you found anything out about the quality of the group or are there factors that have to go into a group, you know, in order to have maybe more buy-in or more longevity as a group member? That's a great question. I haven't seen anything out there on that specifically. Like, what are the characteristics of the group that may, you know, increase the odds of people joining and staying versus not joining or joining and leaving not long after? I haven't seen anything out there of this, but I know that there are programs out there where they try to connect people. Like, for example, let's take a page out of a different area of research, like homelessness, people with unstable housing, you know, getting people to connect with those who are now in stable housing, who are once formerly lived with unstable housing and connecting these individuals. Like, And so having, I think what would be a key ingredient here, and the same thing with AA, I suppose, and other types of recovery groups, is that having individuals who have gone through this process be part of that group. It's the idea, like, it's, what's that word I'm looking for? It's uh, rapport. You know, they have, mm. they have rapport. They, they like, we've all been through this kind of, we know where we where we all stand. We, we have a shared experience, right? And so that helps to create a sense of weeness. But, you know, again, it takes buy-in, commitment, you know, seeing that this group is part of who I am now. It's, that involves changing your life right? Changing your lifestyle to some extent, depending on the condition we're describing, you know, like uh, friendships. If you used to go and have binge drinking with friends, you don't, you can't do that with, with those friends anymore if, if those friends are still binge drinking. Yeah. So other than those kinds of things, changing your life, right? Like <laughs> just changing your life, I know, things, I know. right? Like it's just that simple. And we joke about this all the time with our clients too, right? Yes. You know, and I, I think about, as you were sharing, you know, I think about during the course of this interview, I think about the study where they did on Rat Park, you know, and oh, yeah. yeah, right. And how, you know, once they were put in Rat Park, then they were less likely to choose the sugar water or the cocaine water or whatever it was. And it just really makes me reflect on there are so many people out here with a similar goal, right? Like we're all just trying to help people in whatever capacity we it is we're showing up. And we all, like you said, have these kind of biased ideas. So certainly we have, you know, people in the field who think just get rid of the substance and all will be well, or the behavior and all will be well. But, you know, as a clinician, I know that's not true. I'm a mental health and addiction counselor. I'm licensed for those things. And I'm telling you, I'm dual licensed for those things because I know that you need both or all. And I'm hearing you say that. And I think it's been validating during this interview to just, you know, be reminded that like, we're on the right track. We have to treat holistically. We have to pay attention to these things. Are there other factors that we should be looking for other than like, changing their whole life? Like, is there anything more specific? <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, Molly, so what easy to just throw out there, change your life. Like, but you know, that that's the hardest part of it all, right? It's like, you've got to change your friends. Maybe you can't go home anymore because that's where your parents use, you know, let's say you have parents who have the same condition, like alcoholism, you can't go home anymore. You, you can't be in that, in that space anymore. You can't be with your friends anymore, or maybe changing the city. Even imagine if you go to a bar that you frequently go to or different parts of walking past those places might be triggering enough for a relapse, right? And again, many people don't have the resources to do any of that, you know? So... Yeah. And it's so true. And I can totally relate. I mean, I definitely struggled with substance use disorder and I used to own a bar. So I had to quit that job and all my friends worked with me. So I had to get rid of them. But then, you know, doing those things changed my trajectory of recovery and allowed me to see that that's not how you have to live your life. Like there is other options out there. And so I'm wondering, I don't know if you've looked at like social media or media in general, but in terms of people and their development of self-concept, even in the orthorexia material, everything is about being healthy in the media and online. And, you know, everything is also about body image and attractiveness. And like that has to play obviously a huge piece in like, there's so much noise. If I'm trying to change my self-concept, I'm inundated all day. It's not just, you know, triggers of substances, it's triggers of messaging. That's mm -hmm. like reinforcing my belief that this, yeah, what I'm doing is right. See, I see it there. I see it there. And how challenging that is as well. Oh, absolutely. Like the sociocultural piece of this is really important. I mean, I think of it like sociocultural environmental. Absolutely. So you can't escape it. Like in the Western world, it's everywhere. So how do 
we help people relearn how to deal with these messages or how to understand these messages is really important as well. I mean, I don't do area research in this area, but we have done some studies where we've looked at, you know, perceived pressures, let's say, to be thin or to lose weight and how this may li be linked to an appearance-focused self-concept. Because again, like the CBT folks and the sociocultural folks in the eating disorders world don't always talk to each other and they're all doing their own thing. You know, the CBT is like, yeah, this is about treatment. And then the sociocultural, like, yeah, it's, it's treatment. It's also about environment and so forth. So we're trying to bridge that gap. We're doing some research over there showing that sociocultural factors are important for understanding the development of, of an appearance-focused self-concept. And like, just to give you another bit of research that we're currently doing, we're looking at an appearance-focused self-concept and how this may change over the course of a day. And so, and why is this important? Why is this linked to the sociocultural model? I will explain momentarily, but bear with me for a second, because you know a lot of the research on eating disorders in terms of the, from the CBT model, it's all about between person differences. It's about people who have it or those who don't have more of it or less of it. But, you know, we need to know, well, if over-evaluation of appearance or an appearance-focused self-concept is a maintaining factor of these problematic behaviors like dietary restraint, purging, and um, binge eating, well, we need to know whether there are instances in people's lives where you know, they might be, see, let's say, their appearance as more important on a given moment relative to another moment, and whether this change, that subtle change in, you know, importance of appearance may be associated with engaging in these behaviors over the course of a day. And so we have some very preliminary evidence showing that, again, with undergraduate women at our university, that appearance overvaluation or appearance focus self concept, we measured it every two hours from 9 a.m. To 7 p.m. And we did this for 14 days for many participants. That's still a preliminary study and uh, because we only had like, I think, 50 participants so far. But just to kind of scratch the surface, does this thing change and what predicts its changes, which we think are sociocultural factors? But we've shown that over-evaluation of appearance or appearance focus of concept increases from the morning hours into the afternoon and then kind of plateaus at least. And then we showed that this increase. It's a small to moderate, it's a small to moderate increase. Like you can think of it as a Cohen's D of 0.25, if that makes sense. You know, it's a quarter of a standard deviation. It's not like an overwhelming large effect, you know, but it's not something that's negligible either. And we showed that this increase is associated with greater binge eating for the same day. However, what we showed that for dietary restraint, though, it's like on days where they had more over-evaluation relative to days where they had less over-evaluation of appearance, that was linked to just dietary restraint across the board, you know, so more dietary restraint. So our goal now is like to replicate and extend this work by looking at perceived pressures to lose weight from social media, from people in their lives, you know, significant others, dating partners, magazines, you name it, cultural messaging about attractiveness. My theory is that people who uh, perceive these cultural messages are more likely to you know, report an increase in this over-evaluation over the course of a day. And then this will have downstream or you know, subsequent effects on disordered eating. Again, I mean, this is again a preliminary study. There's many ways to extend this research, but we're still at the very beginning over here. And we're showing that, yeah, this psychopathology not only helps differentiate people who have eating disorders from those who don't, at least from a CBT perspective, again, I'm caveating it, it also varies over the course of a day. Like you could think of this like within and between sessions in therapy now as well, you know, like extending it in that way and seeing whether it changes the function of therapy or not. But again, no one's really looked at this from a within person or perspective. And so like we're starting this, we want to link it up to other antecedents, namely sociocultural factors like thin ideal internalization, for example, and perceived pressures to be thin or to lose weight. I'm probably going to take us down a rabbit hole and I, I do not anticipate that you can answer this question, but it does. It makes me think about like, quote unquote, first world problems, like from a socioeconomic status standpoint, you know, do we see the same behavior in countries where food instability or insecurity exists? Do we see it in first world countries where food insecurity is a very, right? Like your research is like, like the one that you just talked about, right? You're talking about university students in Canada, which is a very different population than even university students in America. Like I would argue like socioeconomic status is probably different just because it costs so much for us to go to school here, a mm -hmm. lot more for us to go to school here. And then I think about those 
individuals in the same age bracket that can't afford to go to school who are working, you know, three jobs just to survive, do we have the same experiences? Like, do they have the same factors? Do they have the same outcomes that you're seeing? It just makes me start to think like how much of it is, is related to like, are we creating our own problems on some level? That's a great question. Yeah. I have a couple of answers. Maybe that, well, not answers, but you know, comments. I I can't answer your question, but I have a couple of comments maybe. (laughs) So my first comment is that with globalization today and social media and what were once Western standards of attractiveness have now, you know, been exported all over the world. So to say, you know, so you have, I mean, what was it? My, I teach the uh, clinical psychology and mental illness course at, at Carleton. So I do talk a fair bit about sociocultural factors, but just, I'm trying to remember at one point there was a Miss Universe competition or was it Miss Asia? And she was very white and she did not look particularly Asian. So, and she was very thin. And this is in Asia where we're talking about centers of beauty in North America and the United States and Canada where, you know, it's like thin and white, largely, you know? And so the point I'm trying to make here is that we're exporting these standards of what we think is valued in society. And this could be, you know, in the domain of attractiveness for women, it's about, you know, being thin. And uh, for men, it can be about more muscular build and having a V shape. And so other cultures are also buying into that too. Um, There was this classic study. I'm trying to remember the researcher's name. It was the study in Fiji and where the folks in Fiji, they have not been exposed to Western culture before. There was no television. And then they had, there was the advent of the television and Western culture. And so there was a increase in rates of disordered eating amongst girls in Fiji, young girls in Fiji, because they wanted to look like the thin people on those television shows, those soap operas. The name escapes me right now. Sorry. But it's a classic study out there. Like this speaks to the sociocultural aspects or like the insidiousness of our Western culture, insidious aspects of our Western culture, perhaps, maybe. But let me just say something else a bit about that. Other cultures have their own standards too, of what is beautiful as well. And what is valued or in the domain of appearance, what is what is valued in the domain of appearance as seen as attractive and so forth. And you might arguably, you would probably see behaviors aimed at achieving, trying to attain those unrealistic standards. I call them unrealistic because they're ideal standards, right? Not everyone looks like Barbie, you know? So not all women look like Barbie, all men look like, you know, Barbie and Arnie, I suppose. But uh, Ken, <laughs> Ken, I... <laughs> you, you understand what I'm saying, though. But, you know, they will also, those other aspects of other cultures may be woven into that, too. And so partly, I mean, the problem here then is that we have to change our standards of what is for, in the domain of appearance, what is beautiful, what is considered attractiveness. We see something similar also with money, right? So we have parallel data set looking at this where people say, you know, the rich ideal, you know, you have a lot of money and this is linked to a financially focused self-concept, you know, and the idea of perceived pressure, let's say from dating partners or from mass media about, you know, having money is tied to having good things in life, right? So the same thing with the domain of appearance. If you look like the ideal, then you'll find love, you'll find happiness, all will be good in your life, right? And this sense of cultural messaging is very insidious. So to say it can affect people in ways that are really life-threatening, like eating disorders, right? And also life-damaging in ways like gambling disorders. But then again, you know, that's the theory out there. In terms of coming to the second question that was built into your what you were talking about, Molly, the role of socioeconomic status, the research out there is largely on eating disorders, for example. It's young white females who are middle class. That is where most of the research is conducted. This is partly because of convenience sampling. In part, there are other reasons for that too. I mean, people who are, who are white middle class also have more resources than those who are not. And so they're able to seek treatment and then get into these studies as well. So that's another moving part over there. But there is very little research out there on people who are not white and female and middle class. So we know very little 
about how cultural messaging affects them and what eating disorders, how eating disorders in terms of its symptom presentation and its course and progression may develop amongst people who are not white and female and middle class. So again, yeah. we, we need a lot of, of work has yet to be done, even though we've made, I think, good strides in this area of research, you know, understanding the antecedents and consequences, risk factors and, and recovery. There's a lot more to be done out there. Yeah, I so appreciate this conversation today. You have like both, I can see Molly's face and she's like, and we're typing in the chat. Oh, I got a question. I got a question. So like you are blowing our minds today and oh, but... we are so grateful for you being here. We do have a signature question before yes. we wrap up. Sure. And it is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself, something about be it mental health or well-being in relation to disordered eating or gambling slash addiction, what would you tell yourself? Ooh, I find I've told myself many things, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah, um, that's fine. Give us. I guess that's partly owed to the different lines of research I'm involved in. But if I could boil it down to one thing, I guess I would say something more broad in the sense that when we study mental health, you know, growing up, I was thinking that these are all siloed problems. You know, you read the DSM, you're in your first course on what was called formerly, I put in quotes, abnormal psychology, because we can't, you know, I think that's a very stigmatizing term. We should call it something else. We, we call it clinical psychology and mental illness at, at Carleton University. They're all siloed problems. And that's in part to, you know, how the DSM and the ICD and other, other uh, diagnostic systems out there. And, we're all unwittingly led to believe that they're separate problems. And then, you know, thinking about, you know, as a undergraduate student, let's say, studying interested in mental illness and mental health, I would tell myself, well, it's not as simple as it's laid out to be in these diagnostic systems. It's deliberately simple for the purpose of insurance, <laughs> you know, not for the purpose of understanding why people have these problems and how best to help them. And that, you know, these problems all co-occur, you know, and I think it's been an interesting journey for me to like, you know, go through that. I mean, I'm not the only one who thinks that there are, there's a whole established growing literature in the last decade or so, uh, network models of mental health, you know, that's really the core of these ideas that, you know, these, you know, it's all about, there are so many co-occurring symptoms. These things are really overlapping. Is there really one underlying condition or are these different conditions that need different types of more specific treatments, or there's something that's more transdiagnostic. Again, like there's a whole really vast literature out there on this, but in retrospect, I'd say, well, you know, if I was to go back, maybe I would tell myself, well, you know, going through this journey, slowly and figuring out one piece at a time, you know, maybe giving myself those two cents of wisdom before. Thank you so much for having me be part of Food Junkies. I really appreciate it. Yeah, You're, we so it, appreciate it, having you. And, and yes. like, we may have to have you back because you know, we know, still like, have questions. I'm like, I know. Oh, that would be wonderful. I'm just like, oh, I love this so much. And I just appreciate your willingness to answer our questions. And like I said, sometimes I know that we can ask some really like, off the wall kinds of things, but these are things that we think about and we don't really, you know, we don't always have access to somebody like you who does this kind of research who can answer some of these questions or even at least comment on them a little bit, you know, to bounce some ideas off of, um, not that we're trying to solve the world's problems, although sometimes I think I do get on that, <laughs> that train sometimes, but really it's, you know, all in service of our clients and the people that we work with because we are clinicians. We do, you know, yes. see clients one-on-one. We, we have groups, all of that. And so it's really interesting to us to hear what the research is saying so that we can better ourselves for the people that we're working with. And I just appreciate that you do that work so that we can do oh, that. I think that's yeah. fantastic that you're both clinicians, you know, and, and involved in, these, in this area. You know, I think one thing that is missing, I think, from in our field is the connection between clinicians and researchers and understanding the knowledge needs of clinicians, you know? And so it's just, again, like many people are siloed. They all have pet theories and ideas like, you know, I think it's really important for us to you know, break new ground in, in research is to, you know, have more of a involvement of a collaboration with clinicians and researchers alike so they can, have, you know, figure out what's going on in therapy and how could we, you know, understand it and study it or maybe, you know, have a, exchange and all that stuff. Yeah. It's uh, that's yeah. pretty cool. Well, you're certainly on the right track because ev almost every single client that comes to me, we have to like work around the substance, but then we have to change their whole life. Like you said, like I'll ask, what do you do for fun? No idea. 
are there hobbies you partake in? No idea. Who are your people? Like all people doing the same substance. Mm-hmm. Like, so you have fully captured exactly that self-concept piece and how small their world is and that like, they need to change this one piece, but then that, that whole big life change is the next step. And that's where they need the support of groups and community to help them along that way. Thank you for that feedback. This is great. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, we will let you get on with the rest yeah. of your day. We've oh, kept yes. you well over the hour. Thank you again so much, Nassim. And oh. we look forward to speaking with you in the future. Yes, same here. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.